0: Hi, you handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where you jump into the middle of the dance circle, get on your stomach to do the worm, and then realize you cannot do the worm. (laughs) which is sort of what happened to me one time at a work party. I just uh, volunteered to do the worm and then was like on the floor. <laughs> Fuck, this is actually really hard. So that's embarrassing. Anyway, I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. And this week we're doing a little q and I asked you all for your questions and you sent me your questions and now I'm going to read your questions. (laughs) If I seem delirious, it's because uh, I kind of am. I was up really late working for hours on a project and uh, here we are. So I'm going to give this my all. There might be just some delirious laughing, just so you know, uh, leading leading up to this. So uh, yeah, here we go. Let's jump in this question comes from alexis she says hi remy i loved the latest episode about taking things personally That is no longer the latest episode, but it was when she wrote this, you said to write in, if we had questions, one question was about your 10 year situationship with Howard. You talk a lot about the toxicity of those cycles, especially in the learning to trust yourself episode. My question is after so many relationships like that, how did you finally decide to end the cycle? What did that look like for you? Thank you, Alexis, for that question. Um, let me okay so let me when I think back on that situationship one thing that I can't emphasize enough and I was just thinking about this the other day I was like man the sex was not good in in that situation (laughs) the sex was not good he was not nice to me I felt like shit every single time I will say if the sex is really good (laughs) Let's be honest, it is harder to end those cycles. But feeling like shit all the time, and then also like the sex wasn't good. And when I say it wasn't good, part of what I mean is like, he was very selfish in bed. Which is, I mean, he was selfish everywhere, including in bed. You know what I'm saying? And I remember towards the end of it, a couple things happened towards the end of it. One of them was I told him that I didn't want to hook up with him anymore if he wasn't going to eat me out. And that's just real talk, y'all. Like, what the fuck with dudes doing that? So I told him that and he was like, "Okay, well, I will then. And then the next time we hooked up, he (laughs) he like went down for like, mm. Truly, I want to say 20 seconds that might even be generous. And then right around the same time, I've never talked about this on the pod before, only because I there hasn't really been um, a topic that has like invited it in. But my brother, my half brother, we're not in contact anymore. But at the time, this was like, you know, this was years ago. We were in contact and I was living in Oakland. He came, he like out of the blue was like, he was in LA and he out of the blue was like, I'm going to come to Oakland to visit you. And I was like, oh, great. Sounds great. What I didn't realize was that he was running from the law. Um, I did not know that. (laughs) He got there, like we hung out that night. The next day I had to go to work. He was like sort of just hanging out in Oakland, I guess. And I get a call from my roommate that a SWAT team had like descended onto our house looking for him. And it was a it was a whole thing. It was awful. Uh, My brother fled. I gave him like a bunch of food and some money and he took off. The cops were like questioning me It was a whole thing. All of this happened on a night when Howard and I were supposed to hang out. And I messaged him and said, uh, my brother was in town and he is being chased by the cops. And there was a SWAT team at our house. And um, I can't hang out. (laughs) I can't hang out, bro. And, uh, the next time I saw Howard, which is like, you know, we were like, we're like, okay, let's hang out next week or whatever. He didn't ask about it at all. He didn't ask me a goddamn question about it. He wasn't like, how are you? What happened with your brother? How's your brother? He didn't ask me anything. And I got really upset. I would just sort of reached my limit of feeling used and feeling unimportant and feeling disposable and just feeling like, um, this person that he was masturbating into, you know, whenever he wanted. And like, I didn't, I, I just, I really got tired of not feeling like a person. And I essentially, I I told him, I, you know, I said it is, I was like sobbing and I was like, it is fucking bullshit that you and I have known each other for almost 10 years and we've been hooking up for almost 10 years. And I went through this incredibly traumatic experience with my brother and you didn't even fucking ask me. You didn't ask me anything. You don't care about me. And uh, what I'll say about that too is so much of those situationships when people show up that way, our internal dialogue is like, that's because, well, well, here's what my dialogue was. That's what I'll say. My dialogue was, I something's wrong with me that I'm not girlfriend material to him. And that's why he doesn't see me as a person. Wrong. <laughs> wrong. No, he didn't see me as a person because because he was a misogynist, really. I mean, a closet misogynist, but definitely a misogynist. He uh, is the kind of person or was at that time the kind of person who used women and lied to women and manipulated women. That was the kind of person he was. But I kept sticking around because I thought that there was something wrong with me. Because I thought, if I could just fix this thing in me, then he would want me wrong. No, <laughs> there was nothing I could have done because it just wasn't me. It wasn't about me. And it took me a really long time to realize that. So fast forward, let me think, fast forward a couple years after that, Howard moved back to L.A. I was still in the Bay. I was living in San Francisco and I started dating my roommate's cousin who was a Leo. This other guy was a Virgo. New dude was a Leo. Let's give new dude a name. Let's say his name was uh, Lenny. Let's say his name was Lenny. Lenny the Leo. Lenny was just a 180 from Howard Lenny was really affectionate and really um, sweet and really thoughtful. I mean, he was kind of a, a big kid, but he was just loving, you know, he was just really loving and he wanted to talk to me all the time and he wanted to take me on dates. And I was like, oh my God, this, like, this guy is really fun to date. The sex was great. Uh, the sex was great. It was just a completely different experience. So I start dating Lenny like a few months before I moved back to LA. I moved back to LA where Howard is. And remember we had all the same friends. So I moved back to LA. Lenny moves back to Colorado where he's from, but we were kind of, we weren't together. We were dating, but we were like long distance dating, monogamously long distance dating. Neither of us was seeing anyone else. I go to this new year's party knowing that Howard was going to be there. And I've just been, I've been having like, uh, you know, six months at that point of, of date of this experience of dating Lenny, who is just wonderful. And generous and kind and like really effusive with his compliments. He's like, you're so beautiful. You're so talented. Like you're so hot. I'm so into you. just like doesn't hold back, you know, which was also really good medicine for me because part of my woundedness has been uh, of my woundedness of, of being so rejected by my dad at such a young age was not feeling like I could be vulnerable and tell men when I was attracted to them, when I liked them, like, like the idea of just telling a guy I was into him was insane to me. Insane. It's not insane to me now, but man, it was insane to me for so long. Like, like who does that? How could you just do that? Lenny was such good medicine for me because he had no problem doing that. He would just, he just opened his heart, you know? So I go back to LA. I'm at this New Year's party. Lenny is in Colorado. So he's not there. In other words, I'm dancing. I'm having a great time. Howard is there. I'm happy with Lenny. So I don't, I'm like, whatever, bro. Howard, while I'm dancing, comes up behind me with his hand, grabs my ass and pulls, like, pulls me, grabs my ass and i turned around and slapped him like without even thinking i turned around and hit him and he said oh and he like didn't he like didn't face him he said i just want you so bad and i said you know i'm dating someone and he said yeah well he's not here and i want you and i looked him right in the eyes and i said that's not good enough for me anymore and it was, um, it was a really pivotal moment for me. It wasn't. And, and by the way, Howard and I never hooked up again after that, we did have an interaction at a point after that, where we kind of like went out one night. And I basically was just like, at the end of the night, when he was like, come back to my place, I did go back to his place. And I was like, what's up with us hooking up for so long when nothing has ever happened between us? And he just kind of like couldn't answer the question. And I went home. And I think what started to happen for me was a couple of things. And and I wasn't aware of them at the time. But one of them was when you are exposed to rejection for a long time and you get used to someone showing up with you like you don't matter, treating you like you don't matter especially when that's something that you're already used to in childhood, you really believe it. You really believe it. You really think that you don't, that there's something wrong with you and that you don't matter. And then when someone else shows up and is like, you're the best, you're amazing. Um, I don't want me. I don't want anybody else. Like I just want to date you. It really like, the contrast is really stark and it, sheds light on the gap between the two and it starts to plant the seed I will say it wasn't like I had this revelation but it planted the seed that it wasn't about me that it was like oh I genuinely like this more I like it a lot more when someone is nice to me when someone considers me when someone treats me with respect for fuck's sake you know what I'm saying but but you know we don't always have that experience, right? We don't always like date someone great after dating people who are not great for a long time. So the other thing I want to say is there is a shift that happens when we start healing where we start to take our needs seriously. For the longest time, I, and I think this is why I had so many situationships in my life, for the longest time, I thought that my need for connection was like symptomatic of how fucked up I was. It was really just like, I'm so needy. It was the messaging in my, was my internal dialogue. And let me tell you, when you grow up around emotionally unavailable people, every single person in my family, in my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my sister, they were all emotionally unavailable cold, cold as I No, my mom. I will say my mom is the one person in my family who wasn't super cold with me, but she was really unpredictable. Right. And she was also really cold with me when I had an emotional need. She was great with me when I was really upbeat. And there were a couple of times when I was like, really like when I was struggling with something, when she did show up for me, I think like I've used this before. Oh, She was great when I was sick, for example. Uh, For the most part, when I was sick, my mom really took care of me. One time I got caught cheating in the 10th grade and my mom was actually really great about it. But many times, most of the time when I was in deep emotional distress, I was rejected by my mom. So because of that, I had this deeply ingrained sense of When I have an emotional need, when I'm messy emotionally, and when I have an emotional need, it's gross to people. And it's why guys don't want me because I'm too much, right? That whole fucking bullshit narrative that so many of us carry. I'm too much. I'm too sensitive. I'm fucked up. I'm too needy. My emotions are too big, right? All of that. When you believe that... People who tell like you keep showing up for people who make you feel that way, who tell you that either directly or indirectly, because because like you, it aligns with your belief system. You're like, that is true. I am fucked up. So like, please just have me just I'm so sorry that I'm like this. Please just like I I would be so lucky if you would. And the other thing I want to say about this, I was saying this to a friend the other day Uh, when you have big emotions, people who are aloof it's like you want to connect with them because they have the thing you want. And you want that because you think there's something wrong with the way you are. I was like that for so long. I was like, Oh, I need to act. like these, these guys who are just so disconnected. I want to connect. I want that. I mean, this wasn't conscious, right? This is like in, in the shadows, in the subconscious, but I was like, man, I really want to connect with them because they have the thing I want that I can't do for some reason. Right. Like I, I'm fucked up, but here's them being like the not fucked up thing, doing the not fucked up thing. I want that. And so I kept going back to them. Eventually through, you know, my own healing journey, I started to realize that like, what? No, I like this guy, Lenny. The reason I liked Lenny was because he wasn't aloof. My need for connection was actually really fucking healthy. This was a healthy need to connect that for years, people, um, people who were just really in an unhealthy space, the people in my family had shut down in me over and over again. But eventually I learned to trust that voice. I know I've talked about this at least once before on the pod, but I had an experience when I was like maybe 27 or 28, where I was, uh, waking up out of a dream I was awake, you know, like I I knew I was awake, but I hadn't opened my eyes yet and clear as day. And this is never happened. Well, I shouldn't say never. This happened to me one other time, but clear as day, I heard a woman's voice say, in order for something to grow, it must be trusted, not pierced. And I have held that so close to my heart ever since I, I, I don't, I mean, I do, I do believe in angels and I believe in spirit guides and ancestors. I'm not sure which of those it was. I'm not sure if it was my like inner voice, but that was some of the best fucking advice I've ever gotten. In order for you to grow, you have to trust your own needs. If you need like, like think of a situation you're in, what are the needs that aren't being met? And what story are you telling yourself about that? Are you telling yourself, well, it's not getting met because it shouldn't, I shouldn't have that need in the first place? Or are you telling yourself, my need for love matters? My need for affection matters? My need to feel seen matters? My need for like the person I'm dating to go down on me matters? (laughs) You know, like what is the story that you have about it and why? If you're telling yourself, I'm too needy and that's why nobody wants me. Where did that come from? Where did that wound originate? And, and did, and like, i I'm willing to buy you. It originated with some people who themselves weren't healthy, who themselves weren't emotionally safe. So that's a very long winded answer, but um, I hope that's helpful. I think when you're, in a cycle of situationships, one of the most important things is to take your needs seriously and to voice your needs. To start being like, hey, I need intimacy. I need here. Here's a you know, here's another great example. Um, I started dating someone. I mean, I don't know if we were dating. I don't know what was happening. I've talked about this situation before, but um, this was like during the pandemic. I started talking to this guy. And we went on this like epic road trip. He was like, "I want to take you on this road trip." And I was like, "Great and we we went like all through the southwest and we went into like deep into Baja. He arranged the whole thing. He planned everything. It was like so lovely in that way. but he was emotionally unavailable um and he didn't like to cuddle after sex. And I told him, "Hey, After sex, I either need you to cuddle me for 10 minutes, or if that makes you too uncomfortable, I need you to look me in the eyes and give me a genuine compliment. (laughs) I never would have been able to do that, you know, years before. He chose the compliment one. And I will say, of course, it didn't last because once the whole thing was over he kind of went back to being emotionally he was you know like I want to send you memes and like talk to you every day like we're dating but then not have a conversation I was like hey I need to have a conversation with you about what this is and he literally refused he refused to have the conversation with me he would just keep sending me memes and finally I was just like it was like I was just It was this new thing in me. It was like, I fucking matter. My needs fucking matter. My need to have this for clarity, to have this conversation with you about what this is matters. And if you can't do it, then we can't do this. And I will say it was hell getting me off that ride. It was hell. I fought it tooth and nail. I'm just realizing I have no idea what that metaphor means. Tooth and nail, tooth, what? But anyway, I fought it really fucking hard because um, of the intermittent reinforcement. Highly recommend that episode. It was like very illuminating even to me. I wanted what I wanted. I wanted the connection any way I could get it. And somewhere deeper, I knew that my needs mattered. And I knew that I wasn't going to get them met with this guy and i and i chose to walk away in the end but it did involve me blocking him on everything because i tried a few times to be like this is done and he would still text me and he would still send me shit and that felt really good to me because another thing for me is it felt so easy for my dad to like just be done with me that guys not taking no for an answer actually felt like a huge compliment to me it has, and still, I'll still say it's something I struggle with. Like it's never felt like um, disrespecting my boundaries, which is how I think it maybe should feel. It has felt like I'm irresistible. And that really satiates that wound that I have from my dad of feeling disposable, right? If you refuse to let me go, then you must really have feelings for me or something, right? I must really matter to you. So all of that is to say, I had to take the actions to get myself completely off the ride to like sort of cold turkey that addiction, because I just genuinely somewhere deep inside was gaining access to this newfound belief that I mattered and that my needs mattered. And I truly believe that that is at least one way to disconnect from situationships. There probably are others, but I think that's at least one way to do it. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. Dawn says, hey, Remy, just wanted to throw this into your Q&A. What's your favorite movie? (laughs) Dawn, love this question. Okay. I don't understand how this is fucking controversial. But every time I say, literally never once have I said what my favorite movie is. And people go, oh my God, yes, totally. Every single time people are like, what? And I don't understand that. My favorite movie, and it has been for many years, is Sling Blade. Are you familiar? I believe it won Best Picture in 1998. It won Best Picture. You guys, this isn't like, like what? One time I was on a Tinder date and this guy made fun of me for that. Never went out with him again. But I, but I also am like mystified. What are you talking about? It's one of the best fucking movies ever made. Written, directed, starring Billy Bob Thornton. He's it's his character is like mm, French fried potatoes. I, I mean, that's like the worst. <laughs> like not, I don't do impersonations but that maybe will you know jar your memory billy bob thorn if you're not familiar was angelina jolie's original love before brad pitt she used to wear a vial of his blood around her neck some 90s trivia for you anyway this movie is genius for one thing it's brilliantly cast every single fucking dwight yokum dwight yokum Country legend Dwight Yoakam is who's like just one of the sweetest human beings in like real life. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but like all of his interviews, he's just the sweetest guy. He plays this like piece of shit, alcoholic, abusive boyfriend, and he's brilliant in it. The kid in the movie is fucking brilliant. Fucking John Ritter as the gay best friend. Brilliant. But what I really love about the movie is that it takes on a massive question. It asks, what is good? What does it mean to be good? And what does it mean to be evil? This is a huge question. And I don't see a whole lot of movies that are asking that question but it it doesn't ask it in a it, like loudly you just have to think about it you have to think even though this person has murdered was that murder in the best interest of others it, was it actually the good and right thing to do I mean of course that it's not the first time anyone's ever asked that question but the way that the movie does it is so brilliant And it's also funny. Maybe that's one thing that I also love about it is that it's like it it is an incredibly poignant movie and it's painful, but it's so it's like it's really smartly written and it's just really funny also in moments. And so, yeah, if you haven't seen Sling Blade, I can't recommend it enough. And also like this quiet depiction of the South. And, um, you know, I'm originally from Austin, Texas. I grew up around Southern culture, and that's another thing: honest depictions of Southern culture, where the, it's not sort of being um, a ridiculed or what's what's the other word I want to say? It's sort of like, or it's not like some cheap copy of it. You know, I I don't know where Billy Bob Thornton is from, but I think he is from the South. It was a really honest depiction of the way that people in the South interact with each other and also how they take care of each other in ways that you don't see in other parts of the country. And also, you know, the depiction of abuse I think was, was really brutally honest and really, really beautifully done. So yeah, Sling Blade is my number one, but I will say that like my number one comedy of all time is the Big Lebowski. And that is, a non-negotiable for me. And like if you don't like the big Lebowski, like we can't be friends. <laughs> or you don't think it's funny, like I don't know what to tell you. It is the funniest movie ever made, and that's not debatable. And it's so well done, so well shot. Everything about it is perfection. I and and I'll say this: every time I see it again, which I've seen it a gajillion times, I notice something that I haven't noticed before. For example, when he's in Maude's apartment, at one there's one shot where there, there are these like scissors on the wall, like a big painting of scissors on the wall behind him. And like no, they don't t- like it doesn't come up in conversation. It's just like you might notice this thing if you're looking for it. Later in the movie, he has a dream of being chased by these scissors, like huge scissors. And it's the same. Scissors that are in the painting, stuff like that, that you, you just have to see it enough to catch it. But it's, but also like, it's not like you have to notice those things to appreciate that movie. It is a genius movie. And I think like comedies often don't get the recognition that they deserve for being so smart. Although I also will say, I think a lot of comedies aren't very smart. (laughs) Most comedies don't make me laugh really, but, but the big Lebowski is the smartest, best comedy ever made. It's in my top three movies of all time. It's probably my number two movie under Sling Blade. Um, it's it's not asking a huge question necessarily in the way that uh, Sling Blade is, but it is done to perfection. The Coen Brothers never made a better film in my opinion. Just a a real fucking hero of a movie. Say has has saved my mood many times. Okay. Next question. This comes from Jillian. She said, hey, Remy, just wanted to send you a question for your Q&A episode. I've always wondered if you think your parents know about the pod or if this is something you actively keep from them. I've always struggled with wanting to be more vocal about my experiences on different platforms, but I've never brought myself to do it for fear of family members finding out. Would love to hear any of your thoughts around this. This is a great question, Jillian. So thank you. Uh, Where to begin with this one? Um, one thing I'll say is I had been thinking about doing the pod for a while, but had been putting it off for exactly this reason. It had never been safe in my family to talk about. Uh, to hold anyone responsible, right? Like it had never been safe for me to be like, Hey, you, your behavior was X, Y, Z. It had X, Y, Z impact on me. And now I'm in therapy <laughs> or, you know, like now I am emotionally like crippled in this way. Um, that was not safe. And, and when you did that, what that meant is that you would lose connection, particularly with my parents. I would lose connection with my parents if I did that. One time I had a, I had a blog as one did back in the day. I'm trying to think this is probably like around 2008, I want to say, 2009, 2010 in there. I had a blog and I had this experience where I'd hooked up with this guy and I didn't hear from him afterwards, which I was bummed about. And then I got an email from him and the subject line of the email was, I hate you. (laughs) And then there was nothing in the body. All it said was, I hate you. I hate you. After we hooked up, I hate you. And I remember uh, (laughs) I got that and I felt excited. Which was very, like, the fact that I felt excited was upsetting for me. I felt excited because I immediately, when I hadn't heard back from this guy, was like, oh, this guy doesn't care about me, right? Like, it triggered the I'm disposable stuff. And I just figured, like, he'd gotten what he wanted and then he was done. But the fact that he hated me, even though I had no idea why, and and even though that's fucked to send to someone... The fact that he hated me though, it was so much better than not mattering. And so I was like, I was excited that I had gotten this email from him. And when I reflected on it, that made me feel like I was really fucked up. Like, wow, what is wrong with you that you actually liked getting this email? And I blogged about, I blogged about it. And in that post... I mentioned the fact that my dad had been abusive. I didn't, I wasn't explicit about what that looks like. I just mentioned it. And, and I did say that I was angry. Like I was angry at my dad for abusing me and for the effect that it had on how I dated and how I showed up in dating. Well, what I didn't know was that, so some, some background, my dad he eventually moved to the big city of Austin, but he's originally from a very, very small town in South Texas. And it's a town where everybody knows everybody and everybody sort of knows everybody's business. And there was a woman that he grew up with who um like I used to hang out with her daughter when I was really little. And I would go visit my grandma because she also still to this day lives in that tiny town. And this woman you know, very bored, very slow, um, small town life, was very adamant about kind of following my moves from behind the scenes. I did not know that she was reading my blog in other words. And she read this post and sent it to my dad. And she also sent it to my aunt and essentially said, Remy is spreading lies about her father on the internet. And my dad sent me a long letter. I mean, was it long? I can't remember. It was long enough. I don't remember a ton about it. I do remember that he said that he didn't need this vitriol and that I was a brat I was a spoiled brat, which is actually something that he said to me a lot growing up. That I was a spoiled brat. That my mom was spoiling us, which was like hilarious. This man who never paid child support, <laughs> this like single mom, we were getting spoiled by her. Anyway, yeah, it was a, it was a bunch of horseshit, and but it was exactly what you would expect from a a narcissist. Yeah, let me just say it like that. It is exactly what you would expect from a narcissist. And I'm not using narcissists as an insult. I'm using it as uh, it, it is a mental health disorder and it makes it impossible for people to hold themselves accountable. It makes it impossible for them to apologize, right? Like that is the illness of narcissism. So I already had experienced this with my dad years before. And in fact, we didn't speak, uh, I think for four years after that, when I was considering doing the pod, I was pulling cards at the time. I'm, you know, I, I work with tarot and with Oracle decks and I was, I was pulling cards at the time and I kept pulling a card from an Oracle deck that said time to decide. It just kept saying time to decide. And I knew, I knew it was telling me like, this is a choice about what matters to you in your life. You have this desire to initiate this conversation in a bigger way, but you also have these fears. I mean, I genuinely was afraid of how my parents were going to respond. I will say one thing that's helpful for me around this is I'm a Sagittarius and Sagittarians are known for being impulsive and like jumping with, without thinking first. It's not that I didn't think, it's just that I kind of went, well, let's just see what happens. <laughs> but I, I, I think the other piece of that for me was when you are raised around narcissism, you take on a pattern of prioritizing your parents' feelings and prioritizing their truth and their needs. I don't think I have ever to this day told either of my parents, like use the word abuse when I've talked to my parents about how they raised us. I don't think I've ever said You're, you abused us or your behavior was abusive. I don't think I've ever said that. And I remember there was even a moment with my mom where um, she was in a big fight with my sister at the time and I was... You know, I was really tiptoeing around my language, like because I didn't want to be like, yeah, she's upset because of the fact that you abused us. Like I was, I was so concerned that it would hurt my mom's feelings to tell her that she had abused us. And that is really a sign of having been abused when you are more concerned about your. Abusers' wants and needs than you are with your own. And it's a kind of pattern that feels so comfortable and normal that you don't even think about it. Like it feels like, of course, I don't want to upset my family. One thing I'll say is my dad has gotten pretty ill since I started the podcast. And I don't think he has any idea that I have a podcast called the Pachama part. Like, I don't think it's on his radar at all. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. But as part of my healing, since starting the podcast, I have come to a place of really realizing that my dad is abusive and I'm not going to subject myself to abuse anymore. So my dad and I really don't talk, which I think I, I know I've talked about this before, but it's a painful thing because I think to a lot of people, they think it's because my dad got sick and I like basically wiped my hands of the whole thing when actually it has nothing to do with my dad being sick. It's because it it just happened to coincide. His illness happened to coincide with me realizing that I'm done being abused and that there's no other outcome with him. You know, there's just no other, I will be abused if I interact with my dad. So whether he knows about the podcast or not, I'm actually, and I I can say this in all honesty, it's not relevant to me. I don't need him to hear it and feel sad or feel any, you know, embarrassed or anything. I don't, and I don't uh, need him to not hear it so that it protects, like, I don't care. Not because I don't care about my dad even, you know, I do. I just care about me more. And I care about what I need more and, and I care about my path and my uh, what I can give back to the world more than I do about my dad's feelings. So that's the first thing. The second part of that is my mom did hear the podcast when it first came out and we were already in a pretty sticky place in our relationship. I had for the first time set some really strong boundaries and that, didn't go over so great around the same time she heard the podcast. And she wrote to me and said that her her boundary <laughs> was that in order for her to have a relationship with me, she would need me to allow her to come on the podcast and defend herself. And I said, no. What I'll say about that is like I said, I had never been really explicit with either of my parents, including my mom, about how their abusive behavior had impacted me. And so, what really stood out to me, which actually I think, I mean, I think is just a testament to how far I had come at that point in my healing, was that rather than feel, well, like, well, let me, let me be honest. There was a sense of loss, of course. My, The parent I had always been closest to was my mom. So of course there was a sense of loss. But bigger than that feeling of loss was the feeling of, or was the realization of, you heard me talk about the way that your behavior traumatized me. And it was more important to you to defend yourself so that p- other p- that people that you don't know and that you'll never meet have a positive opinion of you than to talk to me about how I have been hurt. And again, that is what narcissism looks like. It's more important that people she'll never meet have a positive opinion of her than to have a conversation with me about how her behavior traumatized me and impacted me in my life. That was the real clarity for me. That was the piece where I couldn't, like I already was coming out of years of denial about my mom's behavior, but that it, that was the piece that sort of like put the nail in the coffin where I was like, yeah, there's no getting around this. This is a mental health disorder that my my mom struggles with. And the children of people who have mental health struggles are impacted by those struggles. There's no way around it, right? Like this is real. This is real in her and the impacts in me are also real. And I had to let go of the need to make any of my truth okay for her. I had to really get into the space of, I prioritize my truth over yours. It's not that I hate you. It's not that I'm, it's not even that the truth is I'm not even angry at my mom. I'm really not. It's such a sad thing. It, it's just such a sad thing. I'm like, my mom was essentially tortured as a kid. And when you, when you are abused, like there are repercussions to your mental health. And my mom has those and that's sad. And it's so sad that, you know, trauma is intergenerational and it has impacted me. It has impacted my life and my relationships. And, and my healing looks like standing in my truth, no matter what. And if my truth makes my parents uncomfortable, then that's something they need to work with. It's not my problem. I'm an adult. It's a process that they call individuation, right? Where you basically become an adult and are like, I don't need your approval. Like I love you, but I don't need your approval. And It takes, I think when we're abused, it takes a very long time to get there or, or it happens prematurely, right? Like that's the other side of it is that you individuate when you're like 14, 13, 12, 11, you know, whatever it looks like because your parents are so toxic and abusive, but either way it's unhealthy. And so I got to a point where I was just like, I, I, am not going to be part of that anymore. And I guess what I'll say to you, Jillian is If you are afraid that your family will leave you because you're being honest about how you feel about how they treated you, then really think about how healthy are these relationships with your family, that they would leave you or um, castigate you in some way instead of saying, whoa, I had no idea that you ever felt like that. Can we please talk about it? Or wow, I had no idea I impacted you in that way. And it's, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know that my behavior has hurt you. And that matters to me. How can we heal this? Those are, those are the relationships that we want as, an, as, as adults. Those, those are the relationships to look out for and to preserve. Not the relationships where when you're honest, people reject you. So that's, that's my response to that. Okay. Lily says, you've been through a lot. What do you do for fun? Lily, what's up girl? Girl. Uh, I recently did this values quiz with my therapist where it was like, what are your values and how are you showing up for them? Like, are you really invested? Like, if you say you really value this, do you, do you actually value it? Like you say, you value it. What are you doing? in your life to value it. Fun was like my number one value. (laughs) Like straight up. I was like career, you know, that's important. Family. I mean, my family is like, you know, kind of fallen apart. There were other things on there that were important to me, but like fun was was way the fuck up there. And um, so what do I do for fun? I do a lot for fun. I think, again, part of this is like, I am a Sagittarius. Sagittarians thrive on adventure and fun and spontaneity and joy. We're ruled by Jupiter. We like, we like fun. Jupiter loves fun. Jupiter is like, woo-wee, that's me. Woo-wee. So um, despite the fact that my childhood sucked, and I and I think also kind of in response to the fact that my childhood sucked, I love fun. So things I do for fun. I go to karaoke at least once a week, usually twice a week. And I will say like, I don't know if karaoke everywhere is as fun as karaoke here. (laughs) I was never into karaoke before I moved to Arizona. But people at at my karaoke night really support each other. It's like you are a star when you're on that stage. Like people are screaming, people are dancing, they're yelling your name like... People here are really supportive. So, and, and that's really fun. Singing, dancing, meeting people. I'm, I'm very sort of outgoing at karaoke. I'll be like, what's your name? I'm Remy. So karaoke is really fun for me. What else do I do for fun? Uh, I, t- I try to take road trips as much as I can. I just went to Palm Springs with my roommate a couple weeks ago. I drank pina coladas by the pool it was truly 117 degrees. It was like nuts, but that's that. I love going to Palm Springs. I love drinks by the pool all day. Huge, huge, like joy in my life. So I make time for that. I make time to get out to New York and to Austin and to LA. Those are some of my favorite cities and I live in the middle of nowhere. So getting out to cities is really fun for me when I'm there, I'm, I want to go dancing. I want to go to the clubs. I want to go to the beach. I want to go. Oh, carnivals. Are you kidding me? If there's a carnival around, I'm going to that fucking carnival for my birthday. One year I went to a trampoline park. (laughs) Shout out to sky zone. Like I like to do things that sometimes it's like, you know, that like kids like to do like a, like a trampoline park or a carnival, like a bouncy house, you know? That's fun for me when people when people when people get asked like, "Oh, what do you do for fun?" And they're like, "I jog. I don't understand. That's not what? That's not fun. Jogging isn't fun, just so everyone knows. Maybe you enjoy it, but that's not something that you do for fun. That's like something you do for your health. I also like take walks and shit, but that's not what I do for fun. Fun is fun, you know, I love Mexico. I love Mexico. I want to go to Mexico all the time. So going to Mexico is fun. Oh, also, I'm a big two-stepper. When I go to Austin, when I go to Austin, like, don't try to, like, tag along with me only because you'll be sad because I'm so focused on two-stepping. I'm like, as soon as I get into town, like, literally, I'll have a friend pick me up from the airport and we go straight to a fucking honky tonk. I'm trying to get my honky tonk on. Like, two-step dancing is a massive joy for me. I love to dance. It's, and especially when in two-step, when you get really good at two-step and like you get twirled a ton on the dance floor, it's like you're on a ride. It literally is like you're on a carnival ride. You're spinning and spinning. It's so fun for me. It's so joyful. It's expressive. It's social. There's music. Like music is so fun for me. Yeah. Those are some of the things I do for fun. Oh, thrifting girl all day long. Drop me off at a fucking thrift store. I'll see you in four hours. Like. That's another one where it's sort of like, don't talk to me at a thrift store unless you are also thrifting, and we're talking about thrifting. You know what I'm saying? Like, do not come at me with when are we leaving? <laughs> do not. I'm on a mission. Uh, I'm trying to think if I ha- if there are any other ones. I like to host parties. I had a couple friends over the other day and and like we filled up the kiddie pool and we just spent the day in the kiddie pool. That was fun. Mm. Yeah. I think those are my big ones. I definitely want to travel more. That's the one that hasn't been happening. And that's like a financial thing, but like ugh, I really want to go to Cairo. I want to go to Jordan and see Petra. I want to go to Morocco. I want to go to Machu Picchu. I want to go to Guatemala. Those are big ones for me. I love to travel. I f- it makes me feel so free, and that's another Sagittarius thing. Uh, we love to feel free. We love to see the world. And I haven't done that as much as I'd like, especially since the pandemic. So man, you guys, the pandemic was so hard for me. I, I know other people liked it sort of because it gave them downtime, but I I'm so I'm such an extrovert. And I want to take this moment to say, I think I've probably said this before, but extroverts get a really bad rap for being like game show hosts, which is bullshit. It's actually incredibly vulnerable to be an extrovert because like introverts, when you guys feel bummed out or you need to recharge or whatever it is, all you have to do is go be alone, which doesn't depend on anyone. That's like you can just decide to do that. I mean, I understand, especially moms and parents don't get alone time as much as they like, but it's not dependent On other people. You can have that. You just make the choice. Extroverts, in order for us to feel better, we depend on other people. It's really vulnerable. We depend on other people being available, on other people wanting to be around us. You know, man, if you are an extrovert and you have a lot of introvert friends, my heart goes out to you. It is so painful (laughs) because you're like, hello, wanna like, hang out with me and they're like, actually would love to read a book alone in my room away from you. <laughs> if you have a rejection wound, oh my God, and you're an extrovert. Anyway, that's just to say the pandemic was really hard for us extroverts. Because even if you don't have anyone close to you that is available slash wants to hang out, you could like go to karaoke or go to a thing, you know, but in the pandemic, we didn't even have that. And when I tell you that the pandemic was not fun for my mental health, that's not a joke. Okay. Hopefully that answers the question. Number five, this is the last one. Five alive. How do you develop a positive internal dialogue when it's been negative your whole life? How do you access self-esteem and positive reflection? And this, these questions come from Adam Those are big questions, Adam. Those are real big questions. The first thing I want to say is that I highly recommend the Boundaries 2 episode that I just put out with Pam Curran, my guest, Uh, Pam Curran. She's wonderful. And she talks about what she calls soul esteem. I highly recommend that episode because I love the idea of soul esteem and how she talks about it. But let me tell y'all about a little experience I had recently with someone um, semi-recently with someone who I was hooking up with. And I essentially, I told this guy, hey, I know that we're like, neither of us is looking for something serious with the other person. We just really like hooking up with each other and that's lovely. However, in order for me to do that and to feel good, I need to put some boundaries in place with this. And like, here's an example of a boundary and I named it for him and he said, I don't mean to be an asshole, but if we're not dating, I don't want to have to think about your feelings. (laughs) Let me, before I get into what I was actually going to say about that, let me say this. If that had happened years ago in my life, I would have felt so ashamed so rejected. I would have gone into my conversation about um, you know, like, I'm too much, I'm too needy, my emotions are a burden to other people, blah, 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 blah. But I didn't. I didn't take it personally at all. I essentially, as soon as he said it, I was like, ooh, that doesn't feel good. And then I was like, this. It's not about me. This is about him being avoided. And I'll also say, I was really shocked when he said this because all of my experiences of him leading up to that moment had been like really sweet. And suddenly he was just like, he was really shutting down. And I was like, okay, well, it sounds to me like you and I have different needs. We value different things. And yeah, it's just, it makes more sense for us to not hook up. And then I was like, Hey, did you read that psychology today article about the rise of loneliness in men? And he was like, no. And I was like, yeah, such a fascinating article. Everyone was talking about it for a minute there. And it essentially says that there's this rise in of loneliness in heterosexual men because heterosexual women are getting better and better at expressing their emotions, talking about their emotions, and at accepting that they need emotional reciprocity. And men haven't caught up with that. And so women are choosing not to partner with men more and more because they really want men who can show up when they have emotional needs and talk about those needs and talk about, you know, men, they, they need to partner with men who have their own level of, of emotional intelligence about their own needs. And he was like, I didn't hear about that. And I said, yeah, you know, um, one thing that I've noticed in our interactions is that that it takes a really long time to hear back from you and that you will forget about plans that we've made. And he said, well, I've gotten so used to being disappointed by other people that I just sort of do it first now. You know, I flake on people before they can flake on me. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Then he said, he just kind of opened up and he said, I years ago was dating a woman. And as soon as we met, we spent like every night together together. But I ruined it because I was really jealous, and she had a lot of guy friends, and I don't understand why I got so jealous, but I was like crazy with jealousy, even though like I've never been cheated on, I've never had a bad experience to make me feel that way, but I really i, I but I ruined the relationship, and I said, "Do you think that maybe you felt jealous because you felt?" you would be easily replaced or like you weren't good enough and that she would just find someone new if she went out with these guys and like, forget about you. And he was like, yeah, I think I did feel that way, but I don't know why. And like, I don't like that about myself. And I said to him, I think when we are wounded in some way or we have some like, Negative belief about ourselves. The key is not in pretending that we don't, right? Or like trying to eliminate the feeling or the thought. That's not the objective. The objective is in being okay with having it. Like if you had said to her, It's really hard for me when you go out and you have a bunch of guy friends because I feel insecure. And I feel like you could just replace me the second you meet someone else or like you'll see all the things that are wrong with me and then you won't want me when you compare me to someone else. If a guy, first of all, (laughs) if a guy ever said that to me, and and this isn't true for every heterosexual woman, but maybe it's just because I have been so starved for vulnerability from men in my life, starting with my dad, But I would be so into it if a guy admitted that to me because it's so vulnerable. And the fact is, I have fucking felt that way a million times. How many times have I felt like you just, you know, a guy sneezes and he replaces me, you know, like I don't that I'm disposable, that I don't matter. Like, how many times have I felt that way? If a guy said that to me, that he felt that way, it would bring us connection, Right, And this is how we create intimacy is instead of pretending that we are impenetrable and pretending that we have all our shit together and pretending that we're a walking Instagram post and that we're confident 24 seven, we actually become okay with some of that negative dialogue, not because we want it to stay right? Not because we're like, not because the goal is like, let me feel shitty about myself forever. But I think we so often think about how do I get rid of this thought? How do I get rid of this feeling? You don't, in my experience. In my experience, you integrate, you create space for the truth of. Accessing self-esteem isn't about Never having a challenging feeling or thought. It's about loving yourself enough to know that even when you have that thought and that feeling, you still matter. You're still wonderful. You're still you. There's never going to be another you. There's never going to be another Remy. There's never going to be another Adam. There's never going to be another this guy that I'm talking about who is, feels like he gets really jealous. There's only you. And here's, again, the thing, if someone is treating you like you're disposable, that's about them. Here's a great example. Let's say you're the earth. (laughs) Let's say you're the goddamn motherfucking earth and someone litters on you. Are you like, oh, it's because I'm shitty. I'm such a shitty planet. I'm the worst planet. I, I know I have the fucking Grand Canyon and the Amazon and the Caribbean. I know I have all that shit. But this fucking person over here littered on me. and And they're like trying to figure out how to like set up shop on Mars. So Mars must be better than I am. No. No, the person who littered is the villain in this fucking scenario. Not like, not that we want to villainize anyone. And it's not black and white, but like that person kind of sucks where they are in their life right now. They're just not able to show up for the earth the way that the earth fucking deserves. It's not because the earth sucks. It's because that person is fucked up somehow. By the way, if you litter, what the fuck, dude, get it together. Stop littering. No side note. But that's my point is that like, we're totally individual and we're really wonderful and we have needs and we have heartache. It's not like you're replaceable. You're genuinely not. And it's not like you don't matter. How could you not matter? We all matter. Every single one of us. The problem is that so many of us were littered on by our parents usually or caregivers from an early age. And so we thought that was about us. And so now when we're adults and people litter on us, we're like, oh, it's because I'm, it's because I'm jealous, right? That was kind of his, that was how his dialogue changed or what, whatever it is. Obviously, it's not always about jealousy, but for him, the dialogue became the inner dialogue became that that was about his jealousy. Like now he does he doesn't want to get close to people because he can't handle it because the jealousy might come out and then they'll reject him. And it's better just to reject other people first and stay safe. But the truth is all of us have wounds. Every single I'm like, every single, I want to say every single one of us, maybe some of us don't. Are those people, the people that you are going to f- be able to feel really intimate and close with people who are, but I just also don't think those people exist. I, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like we genuinely all have wounds is what I believe. When we tell ourselves I have to, Eliminate the thought, eliminate the feeling. You're saying, I need to eliminate my humanity. It's not that you want that thought or feeling to thrive. It's that you integrate it by accepting it. Self-esteem isn't about always being positive. It's about loving yourself even when you're not. It's about being like, I get really jealous because I feel insecure, man. And I need some extra reassurance to know that I matter. It was about me being like, I really need to cuddle after sex, either that, or I need you to like, tell me something that you really like about me because I feel anxious for connection after sex. I don't want to feel used. I could have been like, oh, I'm too needy by asking for that. Oh, it just shows that I'm like, I'm wounded. I'm not like, whatever, you can do whatever. I don't care. Ugh. Well, guess what? That, it just is what it is. It just is what it is. That's who I am. That's what I need. Period. Done. If you have a negative internal dialogue, let's say it sounds like a belief like there's something really wrong with me. That's kind of, that was like my big, my, my umbrella belief for many years. There's something really wrong with me. I couldn't really name what it was and it would always sort of skip around and change, but that's, that was like the overarching. It was just like There's something mysterious that's wrong with me and I don't know what it is. And it's always different, but it's just definitely there. I know when that started to change for me was when I started to go, when it was when I started to like, not feel like I had to hide that so much. When I could just kind of be like, there's the thing. I feel like there's something wrong with me. I mean, I literally started an entire podcast where I was just like, I feel like there's something wrong with me. You know, it's about integrating. Is, you know, I'm, I'm coming back to the same point, but it's, I don't think that, we heal by eliminating. I think we heal by integrating. And over time, we can say we, I think it will a help mitigate and lessen those feelings and beliefs. right? Like they won't be so intense. And I think B, it will bring us greater intimacy with others, which is also part of how we heal is when we we, we can heal in relationship to others. If that guy had said to me, the reason I don't respond to you and the reason I flake on you is because I'm afraid of rejection. And I feel like if I can create distance from you first, then I won't get hurt if you do it to me. If he had said that, it would have really brought us closer together. He's not ready for that. And that's fine. You know, that's totally fine. But that would have created intimacy instead of me essentially being like, I can't hook up with you anymore. So I hope that's helpful to you, Adam. And I I also want to say these painful thoughts and beliefs that we have, they're just often unmet needs. When you hear those thoughts come up, instead of being like, go away, go away, talking to them and being like, how old are you? When I do that, a lot of times the answer that I get is four. That's when a lot of like you start becoming aware of some shit at four, you know? It's like you're coming out of toddlerhood. At four was when I started really realizing that things were not okay with my dad and things were not okay with my mom, you know? And then once when I say like, how old are you? Four. What are you sad about? What's going on with you? Oh, I don't understand why my dad won't hug me. I don't understand why he yells at me. Ah, this belief is coming from this really painful part of my childhood where I was really starting to realize that my dad didn't act toward me the way that other girls' dads acted toward them. I was feeling deeply rejected for the first time in my life, and it's still in there. And I want to really talk to that voice and really ask that voice what it needs and ask what it has to teach me and what it has to show me rather than, you know, take a bat to it. So I don't know if that's quite the answer you were looking for, Adam, but I don't think a positive internal dialogue in my experience looks like being cheery 24 seven I think it looks like when those difficult feelings come up, having a space of love ready for them because they are wounded parts of yourself and you don't heal a wound by rejecting it, by telling it it's shitty, by trying to hurt it worse, by being like, get the fuck out of here. You're so fucked up, you know, being violent with it right? Being emotionally or verbally or mentally violent with it. You give it love the same way you would give a child, a wounded child love. Cause they're really one in the same, that challenging internal dialogue. Those are echoes of your inner child, of your wounded inner child. He's talking to you and he wants your love and attention. Oof, Okay. That was a lot. I hope that was helpful. You guys, I hope. Even people who didn't ask questions got something out of that. I'll probably do another Q&A episode. So if you have any other questions, if this has inspired a question or you have other questions, feel free to DM me or email me. You can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. I often cover those. In fact, I have a, I have a long list. People who've emailed me, please don't think I'm ignoring your request. I have such a long list and I'm going through them. I mean, you know, I have two topics a month basically, so it might take a minute to get to yours, but I have them all written down. Also, if you want to join the Petrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's a really cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, Just search the Patrama Party on Facebook and I'll add you. Speaking of support, y'all, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. I read all the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, et cetera. I pour myself into this work. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and move to just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show. Forward slash the pajama party. Oh, they don't make it easy. And scroll down to the support button, but a simpler option, you can just find the support option on Spotify directly. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.